1: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family...
2: Perfect home sweet home.
3: We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless
1: you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit healthlock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com.
2: Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
3: Welcome to Forward Thinking.
1: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, ground control to Major Tom, or she packed my bags last night, pre-flight, zero hour, 9 a.m., or earth below us, drifting, falling, floating weightless, calling, calling home.
3: I'm Jonathan Strickland.
0: I'm Lauren Vogelbaum.
3: I'm Joe McCormick. I think we've already had the third one, haven't we? We probably have, but it's still very fitting for this particular episode, so
1: that's why I had to have extras to fill in for the fact that I was already quoting myself again next so, week, myself
3: but anyway it sounds like we're talking about space
1: we are talking about space The final it's very, frontier it's very cold in space but uh yeah we're going to talk about uh space and space exploration and really this whole idea of exploring space using manned missions versus unmanned missions like why do should we concentrate on one more than the other is one intrinsically better than the other? Uh, is the era of manned space exploration at least for the time being over? Uh, is it just beginning? And, and kind of have a, just a full discussion about the whole idea. So, uh, I mean, what do you, I guess we should probably start with kind of a historical look at at manned and unmanned missions, right?
3: Well, okay. So y'all know when we first landed on the moon, right? Mm, yeah,
1: I wasn't born yet, but yes, it was 1969.
3: Yeah, with Apollo the, With 11. the Apollo
0: missions, yeah. Now,
1: unless you watch Arrested Development, in which case the first real moon landing was 1971.
3: Mm, yeah. Or if you're, yeah, if you're one of those uh, conspiracy theorists, generally, right? Right. If
1: you're, if you, if you somehow believe that uh, that that the um, most amazing human achievement arguably was it's actually a, faked it's uh, a product
3: of Stanley Kubrick and a set in the desert somewhere yeah. right right which uh, by the
1: way we do not subscribe to that
3: <laughs> yeah well okay uh, turns out that's still wrong either way uh, depending on how you define the question, we actually put tons of stuff on the moon before any humans got there. That's where my remote control is, actually. I'm pretty sure. I don't have any direct
1: proof, but I can't find it anywhere here on Earth. And
0: most of my left socks. Yeah. Wait, <laughs>
1: you, wow, your socks are actually left and right?
0: No. Oh,
3: okay. No, seriously. We. Uh, so, we actually uh, had something on the moon in the 50s. The 50s? In yeah. the 50s, yeah. In 1959... Uh, the Soviet probe Luna 2 smashed into the moon. It's not quite what you'd call a landing, more but of a it, crash. But it, it it took some molecules from Earth and it put them on the surface <laughs> of the moon, <laughs> right. and so and they're still there in one way or another.
1: Now that's honestly, I did not i I had known of the Soviet uh, space program and the fact that they had fired stuff to the moon and actually landed things on the moon. Mm-hmm. But until we did the research for this, I honestly could not remember the the, the name of the program at all. And uh, and the reason why I bring that up is because that plays into what part of our conversation later on. I just think it's an interesting thing is that I'm aware of it, but I wasn't really knowledgeable about it. Yeah,
0: sure. sure. And I think the part of that is that none of us were alive then. You know, it's yeah. um, and so, you know, perhaps if we had been the geeks that we are in that particular time period, we would remember these things. But
3: maybe but there are so many of those. And I was just astonished. How many uh, things we put on the moon that I didn't even know about before, like before Apollo, Apollo Eleven, 11. set down? And, so and you had this, you had this impact in the in fifty nine, right? Right, and the th- hard landing. Yeah, uh, the first soft landing was another Soviet spacecraft. It was the same. It was from Luna Nine, uh, so the same series, and that was in nineteen sixty six. Um, right. So still
1: and, years before we managed to land any people, oh, there. But, yeah. but only
0: a couple years. I mean, that's that's a Three impressive. Years, yeah. uh, and, it, oh, sorry, a, a loose definition of a couple. Sure. But th- no, that's that's a very short period of time between manned and unmanned.
3: Well, it's amazing what we didn't know about the moon back then. So when they put down Luna 9 on the moon, one of the important things they found out is, oh, okay, so you can put stuff on the moon and it won't sink. Right. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine, think about this, You're you're a NASA scientist planning a manned mission to the moon. We're going to put some astronauts on there. But one option in your mind is that the moon is completely covered in dry quicksand, and that when you set foot on it, you would sink into the moon. Right. Sink into the moon. That perhaps it was
1: just so powdery that you would end up uh, so deeply entrenched in it that Mm -hmm. there would be no way to get back out again.
3: Yeah, but so the Luna 9, they learned that, oh, okay, no, you you won't sink. Uh, You know, It's it's safe for human landing. Uh, The Surveyor 1 was the first U.S. spacecraft to land on the moon. That was a few months after uh the luna 9 and and then we had a bunch of other impacts and landers before we ever got to uh the apollo 8 which orbited the moon and then 11 which finally set down right and so it took us this long to get to the human landing but the human landing is what everybody remembers
1: yeah exactly yeah if you if you talk to people about moon landings then they naturally tend to think of the apollo missions specifically apollo 11 although six missions did ultimately land uh, on the moon, I think twelve astronauts were uh, able to walk on the surface of the moon, and uh, and so you know that's uh, and one of those missions was supposed to go there, but didn't quite manage. Oh that. yeah, right, well we'll right. talk about that yeah. later.
3: But uh, so th- this kind of puts something in perspective. We haven't been back to the moon with human beings since the 70s.
1: Right, and we've we've seriously cut back on just manned missions into space in general with mm-hmm. oh, well we know, haven't
3: been anywhere else either well yeah. you know
1: <laughs> well i'm talking about being like just even right. going into orbit. Even I mean, you know, the s- space shuttle program has been sh- shelved. It's actually well been scrapped at this point. It's it's retired. It's done. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a space shuttle mission anymore.
0: Not uh, governmentally have, speaking anyway.
1: Yeah, we have privately. Uh, we well, even then it's not space shuttle, but yeah, it's the like the Dragon Space program, things like that uh, over at SpaceX. And then you, a few other uh countries of course still have space programs that are sending people to and from the International Space Station, but you know, I think when we had the first moon landing and we had the first uh, experience of seeing people walking on the surface of the moon, the natural progression there was to think, wow, this is this is the beginning. Yeah, of here our, we go. Yeah, we're going to go out <laughs> there and we are going to explore uh, the solar system and beyond. And, and people are going to play a big part in that. And as it turns out, a lot of that hasn't happened. I mean, we we have explored the solar system quite a bit, but we've done so with these unmanned missions. And we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about why that is. Why have we gone down this route of unmanned versus manned?
3: So I think first we should just give a a real brief overview of of what these unmanned missions look like and then um, what kind of advantages they provide over manned missions or what are the disadvantages of manned missions. Sure. Uh, So a lot of what we're talking about is space probes. Or planetary orbiter probes, right, and occasional um, rovers. Yeah, and yeah. rovers. And uh, so, the most common is we'll send out a probe that's it, like it orbits other planetary bodies, and it takes uh, data readings of all different kinds. Sometimes photographs. Uh, right. You've got the deep space probes like Voyager, and they're just going. Yeah. You know. Yeah, these are ones uh, the Voyager probes, in
1: particular, were designed to do surveys of the outer planets in our solar mm-hmm. system. And then once they were done with that, they were to continue on into uh, the the furthest reaches of yeah. our solar system. And
0: Gravitationally ricocheted off of uh, Jupiter. Yeah, Jupiter? it was. Am it, I crazy? It, I,
1: it all depends on which Voyager you're talking about. Oh, okay. Because one of them, one of them just visited essentially, uh, you know, like like Saturn and Jupiter, and the other one went further out, all the way to uh, uh, Neptune, and then headed off into interstellar space or toward interstellar space. We should say that. It's one of those milestones that has constantly shifted the idea of leaving the solar system. Yeah, right. And it seems like every
0: about every three months NASA goes like, oh, it's leaving the kind of thing that we thought was the edge of the solar system, but we're finding out that it's bigger than we thought.
1: I kind of think of that as like trying to leave Atlanta. The, f- <laughs> the further out you go, the bigger Atlanta becomes. So uh-huh. for example, if you, if you live within Atlanta, you tend to think Atlanta is the, the city, like the city of Atlanta. No, the Inside city has the an extremely right.
3: high escape velocity.
1: Right. You, you get to the <laughs> perimeter and then you're thinking, all right, well, then now, now, cause the perimeter is actually bigger than the city, right? So, the, you know, you get to the perimeter and then other people who are outside the perimeter are saying, no, you're still in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You get a little further out of there and people who are like in Athens are saying, no, you're still in Atlanta. Even if you say you're in Stone Mountain, you're still in Atlanta. I know that this has lost everybody else who doesn't live in the Metro Atlanta neighborhood, but uh, hey, it's true. It's one of those things where the solar system gets bigger the further out we go. And nope, you're not done yet.
3: So you've got the... Space probes. Yes. Uh, yes. you've got, you've got a few landers, like the Venera landers that landed on Venus. Right. Those were Soviet craft that, if you ever see the pictures these things take, if you haven't seen in Google the photographs taken by the Venera lander, mm-hmm. they're, they're just kind of some rocks, but it's still haunting. Yeah. This eerie yellow mist over this scary-looking gravel. I don't know. Something about it haunts me. One
1: young girl wearing a night shift and her hair down over her face.
3: (laughs) Yeah, basically.
1: I might be looking at the wrong pictures.
3: (laughs) Um, But a lot of these landers don't make it back. We've had a a Japanese space agency had to put a lander on an asteroid Uh and then got that to return to Earth, but Hmm. not a whole lot of landers. Uh, We've had some rovers, like rovers on the moon and on Mars. Right. Um, the Mars rovers, we've had a bunch of those, are yeah. right? the most recent one Spirit, ones? The
1: Opportunity, the Curiosity. Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh Viking? Was Viking one? Viking was... I thought that was a probe. It uh, might yeah. have been. I'm I, sorry well, if it, I got that uh, Viking mixed up. landed,
1: but it wasn't a rover. It, it landed on Mars and it gave us our first uh, color images of Mars, the Viking oh, okay. one. But it... I don't remember it being mobile.
3: Okay. That might... I think that's right. Um, yeah. And the most recent, obviously, is Curiosity... One thing um a lot of these and of course we we mentioned orbiters but there have been more recent orbiters of different planets we we've seen like Cassini doing its cool work in Saturn and
1: mm-hmm.
3: um the uh, the Grail probes doing uh gravity research on the moon right one thing all of these unmanned missions seem to have in common is that they're suicide missions you know like there's a, yeah, yeah. there's sort of a planned end. It's just like, well, because we've got all these dead rovers on Mars, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, some are still going, some S- aren't.
1: Some, some, are, some are destined to die on Mars, Well, yeah.
3: they're all destined to die, pretty yeah. much. Unless, yeah. unless
0: we get our butts over there real quick and, and... And
3: find a way of picking them up and bringing them back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, we've learned a lot of cool stuff from these, these unmanned probes, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, th- we, we learn... Lots of basic information
1: about the the uh, environments that we send them to, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, we can learn things like the chemical composi- composition of the soil or the regolith on these these surfaces, well whether it 's the yeah. moon or Mars or whatever. We can get images back, we can take uh samples of atmosphere if there is one, and learn what is what makes up the atmosphere of that planet or moon or whatever. Uh, we can get a lot of information, things like whether or not the you know the planet has a, a, a magnetosphere or sure. all this other kind of stuff that, that is important for us to know, particularly if we want to do further uh, scientific endeavors that involve this planetary body. And I would imagine for all of these, we want to do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and even just figuring out how, how our universe works. You right.
1: Know. Yeah. And, Learning and, stuff is and cool. And the, the history <laughs> of our solar system and the history of our planet and mm-hmm. our place in the universe. I mean, all of these things play a role in and why we would do this and uh y- to your point about these suicide missions i think that's one of the big reasons why we why unmanned missions have taken such precedence because it means that we can send stuff that
3: uh we don't have to get back we
1: don't have to get it back so so that takes care of a huge engineering problem right i mean mm-hmm. cre- coming up with an engineering solution to not only get a spacecraft out to another body in space but then back again is an enormous challenge and it is amazing to me that we have managed to do that so many times uh, but it definitely makes missions – I hesitate to use the word easier but less complex mm-hmm. to – if you don't have to worry about getting them back home again. We, well, that, can,
0: we can go ahead and say easier. I think that <laughs> yeah, No, it is easier. I think it's, that's It's, it's still, an annoying it's thing
3: about humans they art. usually want to come home. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And, and also that they want to breathe air and eat food. Yeah. And, yeah.
3: So well, the, that, that takes us to where we're going next, I guess. Yeah, the, whole, guess. the but, whole
1: idea about the the – Benefits versus the, the, the costs and risks of, uh, of, of manned and unmanned flights. So, okay, so
3: what's wrong with manned missions? Well, let's talk about, let's talk about cost a bit.
0: Okay, alright. So about $25 billion was spent on the Apollo program in the 1960s. And today's money, that's about $185 billion. Okay. Uh, which is a few dollars.
1: Yeah, it's a lot. $185 it's more than, billion.
0: It's more than two. It's more than, <laughs> two. Um, <laughs> more than what
1: I make in an average year.
0: Uh and and a lot of that went to the human spaceflight element of of the mission. Um I I I think about twenty billion um
1: Out of the twenty five?
0: Out of the twenty five.
1: Wow. So essentially that money Like is, four fifths. Yeah. So that that's covering everything from the the systems on board the spacecraft to the the personnel both in the spacecraft and on the ground that are in charge of all the things that are keeping the astronauts alive. I mean, you know, you think about it; there, there, it's not a surprise that so much money would need to go in to uh, the the safety and health of astronauts. As it turns out, space is not a very forgiving environment.
0: Space wants to kill you.
1: Yeah, so. All right, so $25 billion, or like you said, about $185 billion in today's money. So how does that compare against an unmanned mission?
0: Oh, well, the uh, Mars Curiosity Space Lab project, as of right now, sits at about $2.5 billion.
1: Significantly less. Yeah. Now, wow. We should also point out that... Uh, uh, other things to take into consideration involve the proximity of the moon as compared to the proximity of Mars. Turns out, moon is a bit closer.
0: <laughs> right, right. By, uh, by
1: like millions and millions of miles, but
0: a bunch of the cost, yeah, is going to be in, in fuel, right? Um, and and just yeah, getting it getting it all the way out there and making sure that your instrumentation is um, uh, powerful enough to transmit.
1: It's, it's interesting distance. though, cause you sit there and you think about it, and, you're like, and you think, well, if it costs a hundred, essentially a hundred and eighty-five billion dollars to run the Apollo program, which, granted, is greater than just the moon landing.
0: Uh, sure, sure, and it's, it's also, it's a bunch of missions, um, you know, right. the, the, the Curiosity rover is, is...
1: One mission. One right. basic Apollo mission. Apollo was seventeen missions, right. and, uh, only six of those landed on the moon and came back. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas the Curiosity rover was one mission out to Mars. But if you if you just extrapolate, if you sit there and think, well, if it cost us $2.5 billion to send essentially a remote-controlled car onto the surface of Mars and move it around some, uh, then how expensive would it have been to have had a, a Mars landing program where we're putting in the same care – and and uh development in life support systems as well as everything else just to get people there and back and I, you know it it's a huge expense and while we don't want to suggest that scientific discovery should all boil down to how much money does it cost that is a factor you have to take it's a into consideration factor. yeah absolutely it's, what, i would love it if we didn't have to worry about money when it comes to science i would love it if that were just not something we had to think about at all but the reality is
3: you do
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Well, whatever your feelings about allotting money to science, you have to accept that these projects have a budget. Yeah. And whatever that budget is, you need to deal with it. Yep. And uh, so we've got to do the best we can with the money that we can get.
0: In, uh, in, in further contrast, the Voyager program, and the numbers here get a little bit squiggly because, uh, cause, you know, Voyager was launched a little while ago and, and, and inflation rates and, and, you know, differences. I mean, and we're still putting money into that project, into right. building satellite arrays to, uh, to better detect the signals from these guys. Right. Th-
1: um, this is, this is the project where we have these probes that are going further and further away. So it means that we have to keep building more sensitive radar technology or radio technology, I should say, like radio antennas. Uh, to pick up the signals that these things are sending back because they're getting weaker and weaker over time because they're going further and further away from us.
0: Right, right. Uh, but, but overall that's cost about a billion dollars.
1: Yeah. So again, the cost of unmanned missions that I think that plays a big part in why there's been such a concentration in them. It's, it's the idea that we can do a lot more research for less money. Uh, and then uh, there are the other factors.
3: Well, yeah, a lot of that cost comes from – so a lot of the cost of the manned mission, the Mm -hmm. reason that costs more is because you're having to spend huge amounts of money on – training and safety right. to, to keep the astronauts alive.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. like we said, space is, is not a very forgiving environment at all. It's very you know,
3: dangerous. Let, let's just talk about all the ways space wants to kill you. <laughs> okay. Um, it, uh, well, there's the lack a, of air. Yeah, so there's a lack of air. The, the most common ones you'd think about are lack of air, maybe lack of gravity, uh, yeah. coldness. So, so we can talk about those. Lack of air, that's pretty obvious. You have to take oxygen tanks. but that's not always so easy because of course like oxygen is explosive and right. as we saw in uh, in the Apollo 13 wasn't it one of their oxygen tanks that had the major malfunction yeah.
1: and then there was the buildup of carbon dioxide within yeah. the, the capsule itself yeah,
3: and we'll talk about that more later but uh, so you've got that problem you've got uh, of course it's freezing in space
1: yeah so you've got the vacuum of space mm-hmm. which that'll kill you I mean e- even if we talk about yeah. the lack of air but explosive
3: decompression of yeah course. right
1: lack of air goes beyond Lack of oxygen. Obviously, we're talking about like there are not really that many molecules out there in the first place. Um, Uh,
3: Yeah, you have to having a uh, pressurized spacecraft in a near vacuum out in space is it's like having a balloon. You know, it's just it's waiting to pop.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, and so if you were to have a hull breach, you know, people talk about uh, uh, stuff getting sucked out of the spacecraft. That's not really what's happening. It's getting blown out. Uh, as data on Star Trek: Next Generation would one day correct Captain Picard. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw that episode not that long ago. But uh, anyway, uh, that yeah. So there's the vacuum of space. There's the lack of oxygen, uh, like you said, microgravity,
3: microgravity, or, yeah. or as
1: I like to call it zero g, because I like to see Joe go crazy.
3: Hey, so this is a little uh, nerd happiness moment we're going to share with you. So if you're talking with your friend who works for for NASA uh, and you're talking about being in space. You don't want to say zero gravity because you're not really at zero gravity in space. You're what you're at what we would call microgravity. It's gravity so small that it might be. Uh, almost negligible. unnoticeable or even totally negligible. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it, why I it, call it zero But it's not totally zero. Oh,
1: so if you're right. in zero <laughs> G, one of the problems... <laughs> I told the thing them is
0: I was that even your own this. hand has gravity, so you're yeah. never... Okay, you, so you're in zero yeah. gravity. So you're in zero gravity. You, okay.
1: you would be, you'd
3: be floating in any case. Yeah,
1: yes. you, you are effectively weightless, uh, if not completely weightless. So Jonathan, what weightless. does that do
3: to your body? Uh, it does
1: <laughs> a lot of things. First of all, uh it can... Are they
3: nice things? They are
1: not... Well, I mean... You can do flippy flips. That's nice. And and roly rolls, and those Uh are nice. That's fun. Uh, if you don't have a strong stomach, you might also do some barfy barfs. Uh
3: Um, well, don't they report? Yeah, so people who are new to to microgravity environments experience space sickness, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you've got your, you've got, You've got some organs in your ear, these little micro organs that are essentially like a three axis uh, accelerometer. It's, yeah. it's essentially the same sort of thing as you would find in a three axis accelerometer device. It's what tells your body how it's oriented uh, in comparison to the ground. And then you have your, your, you know, visual input that you come in to play, and if the visual input and the, um, the input you're getting from those little microorgans are at odds, you start to feel a bit dizzy, disoriented, sometimes nauseated.
0: Uh, furthermore, if, if, I mean, a, a lot of those, those microorgans involve fluid, and yeah. if the fluid <clears throat> is floating then your ear just does not know how to read yeah, that data it's like well screw it yeah, but- yeah. <laughs> like, like some, <laughs> something
1: is happening what ought not to happen yeah. uh, and so yeah you can definitely feel disoriented and nauseated but that's that's small potatoes yeah, compared tip to of the, of the real iceberg problems. yeah so let's talk about prolonged exposure to uh microgravity all right. So if prolonged exposure can mean everything from muscle loss, just because your your muscles aren't having to work against gravity. So you are starting to mm-hmm. lose muscle mass that way. Also, people on
3: the ISS, they spend a lot of time exercising just to try to maintain that, muscle right. density. But even then, I think despite, you know, they, however long they spend on the treadmill every day. They still have muscle density yeah, loss. Yeah, don't they, they?
0: they have to go through a lot of physical therapy when they get back to Earth. Yeah, yeah. And,
3: and then there's bone density loss,
1: and that's Ew, really serious. Yeah. Muscle you can rebuild. Bone mm-hmm. you cannot. So right. you start to lose bone. That's a serious problem. And and uh, prolonged exposure to microgravity environments does result in bone loss. So uh, that means that you could suffer some pretty serious problems when you get back to earth things like you know your bones may not be as as sturdy as they used to be and you may experience joint issues as well mm-hmm. uh, uh
3: exposure to microgravity i think can affect your digestive tract too can it it can uh, anything and that and involves not just making you sick but affect your gut flora the bacteria th- that
1: and not only that but anything that involves fluid and bodies are nothing if sacks of fluid mm-hmm. uh can really get affected if not
3: sacks of fluid yeah
1: I think they that's what I meant. Yeah, they are Saxon <laughs> fluid. In other words, um, uh, ignore my my circuitous uh, speaking, which <laughs> confuses even myself. Uh, at any rate, you the fluids get redistributed away from the extremities, which is not the way they normally are. So, um, this causes some problems. Now, initially, the problems involve. For those of us who are vain, a bit of a puffiness around the face, for example. And so people might look a little more flushed and a bit, you know, a little swollen around the face. Uh, and you know, you think, oh, that's kind of, that's not attractive. Well, it's worse than that because uh, you can actually develop Prolonged issues like cardiovascular issues due to these redistributed fluids um, and blood pressure problems. When you come back down to Earth, you can have issues with your blood pressure, and that can cause more issues down the line. So there are a lot of problems just by being in, a, in an environment that's got microgravity in, Ye- for a long time.
3: Speaking of body fluidics, it affects the, uh, the shape of the eye, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, and then you can see things that are invisible to the naked eye, or at least that's the – that's that's the reported reaction. So Kind of creepy. Is, is yeah. this like
0: an event horizon? Because that turned yeah. out poorly. No, no,
1: it's like cosmic. We won't cosmi- need cosmi-
2: eyes to see where we are going. <laughs>
1: it's like, like, like things that are outside the visible spectrum for most of us, but apparently because of the way the eye can uh, be reshaped in microgravity, you can start to see things that normally you would not be able to notice. Uh, that, though, all seems... Most of the reports seem anecdotal in nature. It's kind okay. of hard. I haven't read too many like serious scientific papers on it, so I, I hesitate to go into it here. I like mm-hmm.
0: I like the idea that astronauts are just punking us on some of this. <laughs> it
1: could be. It could be like, let's tell them. Let's tell them you can see the, the Great Wall of China. Let's tell them that.
3: <laughs> okay, and then, so and
1: then it gets listed on Trivial Pursuit, which is wrong.
3: Anyway. I think we need to get to the big one. I think the biggest, the most dangerous effect of prolonged space travel. Radiation. Which radiation. Is radiation. Yeah, so you've uh, got all you don't types w- of radiation. A lot of lay people might not think about this as much as <clears throat> the lack of oxygen and stuff, but yeah, we're, being in space you're exposed to Radiation from two sources, right? It's well,
1: yeah. There's the sun, mm-hmm. and then there's everything. <laughs> yeah, there's the, the entire <laughs> the, the cosmos, universe. Yeah, cosmic radiation, which really that tends to be high-speed, low-mass particles. Rays. Yeah,
0: cosmic rays. Cosmic yeah.
1: rays, and then you have solar radiation, which can mm-hmm. involve everything from what we're familiar with, like ultraviolet radiation, things of that like that, mm-hmm. stuff that is also harmful to us if we absorb too much of it over. Over uh, any length of time, we're
3: and we're protected on Earth by a two couple, things, by really. the atmosphere mm-hmm. and by the magnetosphere. That's so right. the Earth is surrounded by gases that absorb some of this radiation, and it also puts out a magnetic field that repels it.
1: Yeah, some stuff. Like some stuff, like anything that's a charged ion can get repelled by our magnetosphere. Anything that is not a charged ion, but is a particle that's traveling very quickly, once it hits our atmosphere, it slows down, and that both of these things protect us. Now, if you are in orbit, so, for example, if you're on the International Space Station, uh, you still have the benefit of the magnetosphere, because that extends out pretty far from the Earth. It's not like, you know, as soon as you get up above, you know, 40,000 feet, you suddenly don't have it. But the fact that the atmosphere isn't there to protect you is is a concern which is why they have to build in certain types of shielding uh, particularly if there is something that they know like an event has happened and they have to uh, essentially move away from areas that are more um, vulnerable to such a thing so for example a coronal mass ejection a cme from the the sun might mean that they need to relocate for a couple of hours so that they can ride it out while these particles that are traveling at incredible speeds move through the area so that they mm-hmm. don't uh get affected by it. Now, uh one of the things that can happen if you do encounter a lot of this radiation, assuming that the radiation levels aren't super high, if they are super high, you could suffer radiation sickness and radiation poisoning immediately and and start seeing some really serious symptoms develop on, you know, upon contact. Uh but if they are lower levels, then that's still a problem because it could mean an increase in your chance of developing diseases like cancer. So, this is not a, a trivial problem. This is something that has had to been in consideration for every manned uh, spaceflight. The idea that even, even if it's a short, relatively short jaunt out and back, you have to uh, uh, think about this stuff and think, well, how, how do we minimize this effect on the astronauts so that they don't end up coming back sick?
3: So it gets even worse if you leave the ISS. Uh, I've got some facts here. This is from a National Geographic article where they uh, they interviewed a scientist named Kerry Zeitlin and uh, he said that uh, basically an astronaut, say, flying to Mars mm-hmm. going interplanetary space right. would get three times the amount of radiation somebody gets on the ISS. Right. Um, and during the trip, that would amount to uh, the w- what he used was, it would be like getting a whole body CT scan every five or six days the entire trip.
1: Right. Oh, wow. And we'll yeah. go into more detail about the the problems of getting to mars in a future episode because mm-hmm. we've got some more information about that that gets you know it's it's sobering stuff now it doesn't yeah. mean that we should shy away from it necessarily but these are some of the risks and there are other ones too beyond just these space risks there's also always the risk of something going wrong mm-hmm. either during launch or landing or re-entry to earth there are a lot of these risks as well that You know, we do our best to minimize by doing all our safety checks, but, I mean, even the Apollo program had some pretty famous failures that, uh, that resulted in the loss of human life. And then, of course, there was Apollo 13 where we were, against all odds, able to rescue or the actually the astronauts themselves were able to address the situation so that no one died
0: right right and I, I you know it's you could argue that the capacity of human people to fix what problems go wrong um, is is one of the benefits of manned missions because you know robots don't have the thing that they can I mean you know people yeah. are a little bit quicker on their feet
1: yeah uh, that's, on that's their brains that's one of those things that we can definitely uh, look at as how, how a manned mission can be superior to an unmanned mission and the idea of being able to respond to changing situations and adapt to them or, or address them in some other
3: way.
0: Also, um, diapers have never been the same since we sent manned missions out into space.
3: Oh, you're talking about sort of the, the earth-based practical benefits, like the right, inventions right. we get.
0: Yeah, there, there are a crazy number of inventions. That One
1: might say a crap ton. <sighs>
0: Oh, dear. Um, the, mm. That we've gotten out of the NASA program. Uh, I, I, I need to recover from that entire phrase for a second. No, one of them is, in fact, diapers. Uh, uh, NASA developed uh, the uh, maximum absorbency garment uh, during the space program, which, um, yeah, spa- space diapers.
1: It just makes the whole thing that much more glamorous, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: Uh, no, I mean you know these have these have terrific healthcare industry uses and sure. um, are are also used by by race car drivers and skiers, other professional athletes. Um, wow! During uh huh,
1: suddenly being a podcaster seems way more glamorous than it did before. <laughs> also, I kind of want some of those now.
0: Important reflective coatings um, when. <laughs> Gonna move on.
1: Yeah, that's probably best for everybody.
0: Uh, when when uh, when Skylab was set in position back in 1973, um, one of the solar panels famously fell off during launch, and uh, a company called National Metalizing helped NASA put together this this thin plastic material coated in vaporized aluminum um, to send up to replace it. And uh, it, it can deflect or conserve radiant energy depending on what's needed at the time. Um, and and this is used to uh, to to protect people and also manatees from hypothermia. Wow uh,
1: people and manatees
0: people and manatees well it's it's man- manatees can suffer from hypothermia at like sixty oh, degrees Fahrenheit. the huge it's, manatee it's it's important um, bulletproof materials uh, during the Mars Pathfinder and Rover landings uh, Warwick Mills developed a, a layered coated liquid crystal polyester fiber that um, can withstand punctures from needles, knives and bullets. It's currently used for uh, military and police uh, protective. Gear.
1: so wait that was developed through which program
0: mars pathfinder wow so it, it was it was for the uh for cushioning the landing
1: oh okay i was thinking there were muggers in space there are oh, uh, that's <laughs> other also, way that's, <laughs> other ways
0: that space is trying to kill you right uh dustbusters uh engineers at black and decker developed a cordless self-contained power drill during the apollo moon landings that oh, ended yeah. up leading to the dustbuster yeah, yeah
3: i so, think i've read of that before the yeah, the power tools in general, basically. Right. right? A, A lot of these
1: benefits, you know, whether it's a manned or unmanned mission are are due to you know space exploration, things that you wouldn't necessarily associate with space, you know, have directly benefited us in many ways that you might be unaware of and uh and the neat thing to me is that we get these whether it's unmanned or manned missions but when it's a manned mission because of the just the nature of having to take even more things into consideration it has pushed entire industries forward i mean for instance transistors those were pretty young when the apollo program started i mean transistors had not been around for very long but the apollo program was the number 1 so uh, a destination for transistors that were being produced at that time like they were NASA was the number one customer for transistors that for for years because of the Apollo oh, program, mm-hmm. but that meant that it gave other companies this incentive to continue to improve their manufacturing processes and development processes so that that entire industry uh grew quite a bit in those years, which benefited everybody further down the line. You go another decade, and then that's when the rise of the personal computer happened. That would not have been possible, or at least it wouldn't have happened at that time without the space industry.
3: Yeah. Uh I want to pick up on another benefit you mentioned a minute ago, actually, Lauren, uh which was the, the sort of human adaptability factor. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of crucial to the long-term future of space exploration. And and this also connects to something we said earlier, that most of these probes are suicide missions. Right. You know, we, we put a rover on Mars and it goes until it can't go anymore. And then that's just a, a planned obsolescence. It's, you know, at, at some point we know it's just not going to work.
1: Right. And and if we're lucky, it will work beyond what the parameters were for mm-hmm. the mission. But eventually it will stop working.
3: Yeah. Um, but... One thing that occurred to me is that wouldn't necessarily have to be the case if we get to a point where well okay we're better at protecting humans at space we're smarter we know how to do it and it's cheaper um if we could have humans to provide for contingencies basically mm-hmm. that that's where the real human strength lies is that a human can deal with a problem that was not foreseen in a right. way that machines can't really yeah so imagine if you we're exploring mars and you have a uh, a bunch of rovers going around on the surface but you also have a, a human technician well if a rover breaks if there's something wrong with its drivetrain uh the human can go and fix that or if the rover gets stuck say so, you know
1: right well uh, if there's a dust storm and the yeah. rover is all right like the rover manages the but be- despite the dust storm the instrumentation is fine the rover is fine mm-hmm. but as a result it is now lodged because of uh, you know a drift of sand is is stuck at where it was you know we didn't plan for that because yeah. there was no sand there when the rover started moving there things like that
3: or uh just imagine even outside of maintenance simple piloting i mean there might be a lot of situations where it would be much more beneficial to have somebody nearby controlling a rover right um, as opposed right. to uh you know several million miles away oh, yeah. Right, cause, because cause
0: as as we've talked about before that you know pesky uh uh you know uh light speed mm-hmm. limit
3: right yeah the the transmission time might actually mean the death of a mission if you if you've got say a probe exploring europa and it encounters some kind of atmospheric variable something that threatens it uh, or something that needs to be responded to in real time. If it takes an hour for the signal to get to mission control and then it's operators on Earth to send some direction back to it, that might be too late. Like, right. uh, think about all these, these sort of time bound contingencies that have popped up in previous missions and took humans to deal with. You could think about Apollo 13. Right. So they had, uh, they had one of their many problems was, um, oh man, we've got a CO2 buildup in yeah. the capsule. And the only CO2 scrubbers we have don't fit the little slot they need to go in. Right. Um, So what they had to do was have engineers on the ground instruct the astronauts on how to basically invent a portal to fit the ill-fitting scrubber yeah they had to
1: jerry-rig yeah uh, a new type of, of connection there
3: and uh, so that was nearby but you can't imagine a machine being able to invent like that right and, right and so if that had been say something other than yeah, now it's worth observing that was life support which wouldn't have been necessary without <laughs> a human <laughs> right. but it could have affected any number of like necessary been, missions it could have, been, yeah. Yeah.
1: It could have affected like a navigation system or some sensor that would, uh, you know, indicate that thrusters were supposed to fire at a very specific moment and they didn't, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff.
3: Another one was uh, Gemini 8. Yeah, or Gemini. Gemini, according to pilot Neil Armstrong, who uh, by all accounts sort of saved the mission by some quick thinking. Um, So that was supposed to be a a sort of experimental mission where they were going to practice docking procedures in orbit. Uh but they get up there and they had a malfunction where one of their thrusters started firing and wouldn't stop firing and it sent the the ship they were in into an uncontrolled roll. Mm. So it was rolling in three directions. Um and basically the human crew had to make really fast decisions and, and use smart piloting to get out of that situation. And to land back safely on Earth and they survived. Yeah. Um, but it was, a lot of people would say it was basically because they had a human crew there that was smart, that, that knew what they were doing.
1: And was able to respond in um, real time.
3: Yeah. And so it's just hard to imagine that a machine would be able to have a planned, programmed response to a contingency that's unpredictable.
1: Right. Until we get to a point where we have artificial intelligence that can not only, uh, uh, detect Detect stimuli or detect, uh, specific scenarios and then respond to them, but also anticipate and even improvise at that time. Until we get to that point, then it's pretty clear that humans are going to be better at those kind of situations than machines are.
3: Yeah. Another thing that I think human adaptability really helps is, uh, is changing research goals. Think about this. I mean, Curiosity Rover, the Curiosity Rover is amazing for science. Yes. It's taught us a lot of really cool stuff. But it has set mission parameters and stuff it can do. And if you suddenly discovered something, if you wanted to change the mission, that'd be hard to do. Yeah, because if you
0: discovered that when you landed on Mars that you just sank right into it. then, yeah. For example, then, you know, yeah, yeah the, the, the rover couldn't have done anything about that. Of uh, course, we we knew when we launched yeah,
3: it that it wouldn't yeah. do that. But, thing, but, but, but say it just wanted to do some kind of. Sampling or any any kind of experiment that That wasn't planned for beyond the
1: original mission. It just it
3: wouldn't be able to do that because it wouldn't have the right hardware. It wouldn't have the you know it just wasn't programmed. Yeah. Um. But a human astronaut, I mean, essentially they they could be able to do anything.
1: Yeah. Anything as long as they they had as long as they got the materials. Yeah. 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 Well, then that kind of leads us on to another big benefit of manned missions, which is that you know you can't really. Discount the fact that it's an inspiring, uh, uh, thing to have. Like to have yeah. someone who goes out into space and explores truly what we call the final frontier, uh, that's, that's a big thing. And, you know, it really is an inspiring thing. The, the world changed when people walked on the moon. The world changed the first time that a Soviet astronaut, you know, orbited the, the earth. I mean, it's,
0: yeah. we, we, there, we consider these people heroes. Right.
1: Well, Think things, back I shouldn't to, say orbited the Earth, but went into Earth orbit,
3: but yes. Right. Think back to what I said at the beginning. Remember all those landers that put, we put on the moon that we couldn't remember the names of? Yeah. I mean, that was all before Apollo 11. But, but Apollo, Apollo 11 is that's
0: Apollo That's the one. Yeah. 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 And and you know it's I you could you could argue that that it's all it's all marketing or something like that because you know of of course a a human face and that hero element is is something inspiring that that these programs that are looking for funding kind of want to latch onto, um, but but at the same time they 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 are I mean they, they these are these are our stories I mean, I mean if you look yeah, at something it, like like you know a- any of the space exploration stories that we have from the past hundred years and I mean,
1: even the even. Some of the more famous rovers, like, you know, we, we saw it with the rise of social media giving rovers a voice yeah, on social yeah. media. Yeah,
0: having the Curiosity Rover giving them a Twitter account. Right. And, <laughs> and even
1: before Curiosity, we had rovers that had their own Twitter accounts and, and we kind of anthropomorphized these, these well, roving mm-hmm. robots. Wally
0: came out and. and yeah, and that mm-hmm. helped
1: too. But it, I mean, I remember getting a little weepy when getting messages about how a a rover's battery was dying and essentially its job was done and people were all like, hey, good job. And I mean, like, why am I feeling emotional about (laughs) About something that cannot feel? It actually isn't. I mean, it's essentially as if I had really did chuck my remote control onto the moon. There's, I (laughs) I might be frustrated that I can't change my channel, but I'm not really sad about the remote control. But it is this thing where we have identified with with something that is doing a mission for science, for the good of mankind, for us to learn more about how our universe works, and when it's a person doing that, I mean, the the reason why we felt that way about the robot is because they gave the robot of a, a human voice, right? Right? I mean, otherwise we just would have been like, "Wow, that was a really cool device, and I'm glad we did it," but you wouldn't have an emotional connection. But, but, necessarily. but you put
0: you put this whole like number five is alive kind of concept right. next to it, and, and and
1: that's that's a powerful story.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat>
3: I think in, at the bottom line, a rover can do amazing research, but a human being is an adventure.
1: Yes. And, and there's something about adventure that runs deep within the human psyche. There's this desire for adventure and need for adventure for a lot of us. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, Wanderlust. yeah, this, the, the itchy feet syndrome, the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, you are exploring and learning and it's, It's something that goes really, really to the core of being human. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's hard to put it into words because it's just one of those experiences that we kind of all feel, but you know, it's, it's just part of who we are.
3: So how do we reconcile this? We know that for now, unmanned missions seem like the much better deal. Like we can learn so much from them. They're really useful. Uh, and they cost so much less and there's less risk to human life. But the manned missions we've talked about have all these great advantages. What's the? How does this balance out? Well, I think you have to have a you have to have both. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I
1: think unmanned missions being uh, are important so that we can gain as much information about our potential destinations as possible, so that we can prepare for when we actually do go there. But I think that uh, there are a lot of things that that you can only do if humans are directly involved. In fact, one of the things NASA has said about the, the Mars missions is that we've pretty much done everything we can do on Mars with, without getting People. our hands on mm. martian stuff so right now the proposed mission next mission to mars uh, is not a manned mission from nasa this is specifically nasa's approach um, but rather to send a series of robots that will gather uh, material from mars and then bring it back to earth and Actually, one robot gathers it, another robot retrieves the, uh, the canister and goes into Martian orbit, and a third one goes into Martian orbit and retrieves the canister from the second robot and then brings it back here. Whoa. Yeah, it's a three robot mission. It's actually the, the guy from NASA who was explaining it to me was, uh, he could, he was thrilled at how I, my jaw just kept hitting the floor <laughs> over and over, and because I was thinking how, what an amazing achievement it was to land the Curiosity rover onto the surface of Mars, the way that it happened. It was just such a phenomenal feat of engineering and science that I was speechless when it worked. I could not believe it. Uh, I had been hoping and hoping, but when it happened, I was just like, I, I I cannot believe we humans have come up with a way of doing this. And now we're talking about taking the complexity of that mission and essentially, I mean, I could say tripling it, but that really doesn't even bring it into... That's a crazy yeah, underestimation. It, yeah. It's just crazy that what what would be... Uh, necessary for this to work but we've already done the crazy so why stop there (laughs) now that even then we're talking about bringing stuff back not going there yet but i think that it is really important that we continue to uh have the human element in exploration and not only is it important it's kind of unavoidable because it is who we are you know i mean to think about the the explorers back in the early 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 days hundreds and thousands of years ago people who risked their lives to find out what is on the other side of these mountains you know that's something that is kind of just intrinsic in us so w- while it might be really difficult i think it's impossible for us not to go out there
0: sure and i think that <laughs> that that dream is going to drive a lot of the sure. the rest of the program
3: that's so. a that's a really interesting way of putting it it's not can we do it, it's can we not do it. Yeah,
1: how, how can
3: we <laughs> not do it? I mean, how could we deny that part of
1: ourselves? Um, and I have uh, – I, I grabbed a collection of sort of uh, interesting quotes about space and astronomy and and space exploration. And I just thought I'd share a few of these with you. Some of them are, are pretty amusing. Uh, and some of them – one of them at least could be apocryphal, but I will – I will let you know which one that is. <laughs> um, so the first one I have, uh, really just kind of to set the scene, this one uh, comes to us all the way from 342 BC. This is Plato, who said, astronomy compels the soul to look upward and leads us from this world to another, which really that goes right to the heart of what I was saying, this idea of exploration. Now, that was just intellectual exploration at that point. Of course, there was no way that Plato was ever going to get off the surface of the earth. But I, I think it really does speak to that desire. Uh, then there's um, Ray Bradbury who said in July 1969, this is the result of six billion years of evolution. Tonight, we have given the lie to gravity. We have reached for the stars. And, you know, it's this sense of wonder at the achievement of landing people on the moon. And then uh, – uh I love this quote because I, I mean I love watching the footage of the moon landing and the new the, the news reporting that was going around with it because it just shows how uh phenomenal that moment was. So when the Eagle landed on the moon, I was speechless and overwhelmed like most of the world, couldn't say a word. I think all I said was, Wow, geez, not exactly immortal. Hmm. Well, I was nothing if not human. That was Walter Cronkite. <laughs> who, you know, I mean he was like this, He was
0: the voice of, of of a generation. He
1: was he was the voice of the news. And yeah, he really yeah. was. And then like if you watch the moon landing, you see him break down. Mm-hmm. And like just he's so overwhelmed. I mean, that's a phenomenal thing. Um and then uh Arthur C. Clarke, famous science fiction author, said the moon is the first milestone on the road to the stars. Which, you know, I think uh, we'll have more to say about that in our next episode, because we're thinking about a uh, particular exploration type episode for, uh, for Friday's show. And then a man, this is the apocryphal quote, possibly apocryphal quote. A man is the best computer available to place in a spacecraft is also the only one that can be mass-produced with unskilled labor. (laughs) That uh, that quote is attributed, and again, could be apocryphal, to Werner von Braun,
2: famed rocket
1: scientist. Um, Oh, That's brilliant. David R. Scott, who was the commander of the Apollo 15 mission, had a couple of really good ones. One of them is, For when I look at the moon, I do not see a hostile, empty world. I see the radiant body where man has taken his first steps into a frontier that will never end. And then his other one is, as I stand out here in the wonders of the unknown at Hadley, I sort of realize there's a fundamental truth to our nature. Man must explore. And this is exploration at its greatest. Uh, then it, this one might be my favorite one. It's the penultimate quote in my list. So I do have one more. But it's, whoopee! Man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but it's a long one for me. was Charles Conrad, Jr., who was commander of the Apollo 12 and the (laughs) shortest astronaut in the Apollo program. (laughs) Uh, Reportedly, he made that quote because he had gotten into a discussion with a friend of his who had said that the words of astronauts when they sat down on the moon must have been dictated by the United States government. And that, in fact, Big Brother was making sure that they said exactly what was on script. (laughs) And he said, I'll say something that will prove you wrong. <laughs> and that's what he came up with. And he said, the only thing I regret is he never made good on the bet. Um, and then here's my final quote, Bob, this is Jean and I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface back home for some time to come, But we believe not too long into the future. I'd like to just say what I believe history will record. That America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon at Taurus-Litro, we leave as we came and, God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. Godspeed the crew of Apollo 17. So that's Gene Sermon, who was the final person to walk on the surface of the moon, December 14th, 1972. So far. So far. Yeah. We hope that that will not be too far into the future when someone else can make history yet again and say the next first words on the moon. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, this is this is something that I, I really find very inspirational myself. Um, you know, I, I I definitely love the whole space exploration theme. We have covered that so many times before thinking I think it's pretty obvious. But uh, this kind of gets to the heart of why I think it's really incredible stuff. So guys, if you have any comments about space exploration, or any thoughts of your own about manned versus unmanned space, or even just, just a suggestion for a topic that we should cover in the future, get in touch with us. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, you can email us. Our address is fwthinking at discovery.com, or just go to fwthinking.com. Check out the videos there, the blog posts, the podcasts. We have links to some pretty incredible articles that can uh, go into even further detail about things like space exploration. Uh, and other topics as well. We want you to be part of the conversation we look forward to hearing from you, and we will talk to you again
2: really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell
1: slash iHeart.